What is up, people? Jose Nino here, your estimable host of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined by Mike Jones, the host of the I Earl Grey YouTube channel. What's new with you, Mike? Well, I was going to say not much, but actually, yeah, quite a lot, I think, uh, as things are progressing um, and expanding. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a fair bit to talk about, actually, uh, in, in both the wider view uh, in Russia... Uh, and my personal life, uh, I'm glad to say, is is pretty quiet, pretty stable. I just went out in a transit van. We've got like you know, like car sharing, but in Russia you can you can even get a van. Uh, so just loaded up a van full of free toys for my my son. So now I've got a playground in my garden. After nice, <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> that gives you an idea. I'm living the good life. Yeah, your background is pretty interesting. Uh, tell us more about yourself. Where do you want to start? That's the question, because I went straight out of school into the army, into the infantry. From the infantry, I went back to Sibby Street, which I, in all truth and honesty, I struggled so hard to adapt to uh, my whole my whole childhood and, and like teenage years were always about reading about yeah, a lot of Second World War stories. And uh, I had a lot of military neighbors. Uh, guys who were in the Air Force, in the Army and Navy. So my whole formative years, let's say, was all geared towards the military. So then to come out to look after my daughter and with an idea to re-enlist, even in those interim years, I, I really struggled. So I en ended up actually ditching everything and living off the land for about five years in a caravan. This is in the UK, right? In the UK. Well, specifically in Wales. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I, I went off-grid uh, and that saved my sanity uh, because I was living, I was living the, not the rat race so much, just the treadmill. You know, where you're both working full time, but you're left with such little money, you wonder why, what it's all for, why it's worth it. You can't even afford to take your, your little one to, let's say, a theme park because it is that expensive. And you don't have that sort of money to get away. You just, it, you despair. And uh, honestly, mm. it fell into a bit of depression, a bit of alcoholism, you know, just trying to switch the brain off the never ending like torture that y you do to yourself in that situation. I'm failing. Obviously, I'm not good enough. I, I have to have this job, but it doesn't pay enough for me to be happy. I'm not happy. And then I realized one day no one's got a gun to my head saying that I have to go work every day. So why am I doing it? And then I, I just happened to, for free, there was an open day at this like eco-village project. And I took my daughter along. I got chatting to a guy from California there. And I said, look, dude, I, I'm, I'm beside myself. You know, I, like, I'm, I don't have any options. <laughs> uh, and I'm miserable in mainstream life. And he said, that's all right. Uh, you can come volunteer, help build the house. Uh, I'll give you food and a place to put your caravan. N not money in exchange for it. Uh, which was fine by me. I said, yeah, heck yeah. And I was working on the bins of all things and I happened to see a caravan for about £100. Just, a guy had died and left it to his kids and the kids didn't know what to do with it. And even his Land Rover as well for £400. I think the head gasket had blown. So I fixed it up, fixed up Land Rover, fixed up the caravan and that was it. We were away, sold everything, moved out and five years lived off, off the land, anything we could grow, uh, hunt whatever. And then after that, uh, again, I struggled a bit because my, my daughter grew up to the point where living in a caravan wasn't fair on her. I had to admit that. So we moved back into mainstream life. And again, uh, I struggled a bit until a friend told me there's this weird thing called Twitch, 
where people will pay you <laughs> to play games while they watch. I was like, that is nuts. That's insane. I reckon I could do that. And I did. And I ended up getting a job for uh, the developer of the game that I was playing in Russia. And that's how I ended up here in Russia. Yeah, that's actually like pretty interesting that <clears throat> uh, you ended up like moving to Russia because like most people in the West would scratch their heads like the idea of moving to a country like Russia but there's a lot of like misconceptions about it especially after following a lot of like channels like yours and like even like the Duran and similar channels you see a really like biased perspective from like the corporate media now you you before we started the show you mentioned how you were um you're in St. Petersburg and Correct. cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg are pretty attractive like international cities in your time in russia have you noticed a significant uptick in the number of western expats settling down there i don't know if it's an uptick but i am finding more of them i'm coming across them now whether again it's like um what is it confirmation bias where when you when you are aware yeah. of something you start seeing it everywhere so i happened to stumble upon uh, an American expat who then put me in touch. He was from North Carolina. Then I found some from South Carolina. Then I found a, like a Frenchman and it just kept leading on to like these groups and little exclaves of these expats buried. It's certainly uh, specifically in St. Petersburg. I'm sure there's more of them in Moscow. Uh, a Danish guy emailed me from Moscow the other day, works for Avtovaz. <laughs> I was like, oh, can you get me a, a cheap larder and Neva? Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of Westerners actually buried in Russia hiding. I wouldn't say hiding, that's not true, but you know what I mean. They're lurking around there and they're very happy, all of them. And the common consensus from our conversations is we enjoy far more freedoms here in Russia than we ever dreamed of in the West. Yeah, most people would be shocked by that statement, but it's mm. actually kind of interesting. I've talked to people who also live abroad in countries like ranging from developing nations such as like Chile to even more quote unquote like authoritarian countries like Saudi Arabia and like the UAE. Mm. And they've all told me, especially in the against the backdrop of the uh, COVID-19 hysteria that those places were like freer than a lot of like the West yeah. and Russia's people would find that like shocking because we're programmed to believe that liberal democracy is like the freest and like most exceptional system to rule them mm. all. But in reality, the situation is more nuanced than what a lot of the academic gatekeepers and, and that's being polite. Like us believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, what in your time in Russia, what do you like most about it? And what what are some other things that you don't really like that much about it as well? Well, I'll, I'll start with the things I like most. Uh, and that actually lends into an observation in myself. So uh, I came to Russia and it wasn't long before um, I had to go traveling again. Uh, when I first came to Russia, there was a kind of bureaucratic thing where you had to register... Or if you didn't register, you had to cross the border every 90 days or something to reset the clock, so to speak. Uh, so I was, uh, when I first arrived in like the first year, I had to cross the border for whatever reason, which was great because I, I thought that was cool. I could, I could either go back to the UK, which I did, or go to Spain or anywhere. And I actually went to Vietnam at one point. But every, and I loved Vietnam. That was, that was fantastic. Again, another communist country. That, I've heard great know, things about Vietnam from it tons is of people. 
fantastic. I even went to Heilong Bay, Hanoi, and there was another place I've forgotten the name. A uh, load of Russians <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, because I think Vietnam shares a lot in common with Russia in the sense of one of the things that I like is common sense. So um, it really hit me when I first visited Spain after moving to Russia, spending a lot of time in Russia. I think it's, let's say, six months roughly I'd been in Russia or Russian areas. And then I went to Spain and I was struck by this veneer on life. It was almost a, a false shine or polish on life. Because when we think of like our human needs and the basic needs that we need, it's universal. You get those anywhere in the world. Um, you know, we need roof over our heads and food in our bellies. And Spain had this look of like this polish to it. But, you know, underneath it, it's just the same. And I felt that kind of hollow fakeness about it. Now, Spain's very touristy, so it has to has, have a good image. But that struck me. And that's no disrespect or judgment on Spain. It was it just at that point, the east east versus west, if you like, really actually did hit me. And then when I came back to Russia, I felt like I could breathe out. I was like, ah, here's his actual real life. And that's not to say that Russia is, you know, like streets are awash with blood and it's, you know, blah, raw. But it it lacks that veneer, that hollow fake quality to life. It's it is a lot more raw. It's simpler, like a T thirty four tank. You know, it, it, it the welds. You know, it's not like a Panther that was over engineered. The T thirty four was slapped together, and there it is, job done. And it got the job done. Uh, it wasn't the most beautiful thing in the world, although some would argue with that. But it, it is what it was, and it was it was simple but beautiful in in that simplicity. And and that's where I find with Russia as well. There's there's some quite raw aspects to it. There are like you know old Soviet areas, but even like Soviet machinery, it's not beautiful, but it's still being used. And there's still Soviet rolling stock on the trams on some of the trains most of them have been modernized but you catch my drift like even yes. even though they might be outdated parts they're functional they work and when you go to the airport there's there's no real faffing around it just you go here stand here speak to this person whereas in like in germany when i was traveling at the height of the health scare let's say it was just a nightmare in comparison. So I really felt like I, I'd, I had come home when I came back to Russia. It always feels like a relief. Every time I come back to Pulkova Airport in particular in St. Petersburg, I'm like, oh, thank God I can breathe out now. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't have to deal. Traveling to Geneva in Switzerland was torturous for me. I had to go that way for some reason to go to London. And even there, I saw British people who'd been skiing or whatever, and they're all the hooray Henrys, <laughs> in their jumpers <laughs> and stupid skiing boots. And I was like, ah, oh. your stomach turned. I was like, Jesus, I am actually going back to the UK and landing in Switzerland as well. Beautiful. Geneva's beautiful and coming in over the lake. But again, I just got this feeling like, here we go. Here we are. We're in this like fake world, fake like empire of lies. Uh, well, it, Putin hadn't said those words, I don't think, by then. But in, in retrospect, yeah, that's actually probably a really good way of summing up just that gut feeling. It wasn't, you know, in my mind. It was a combination of all these judgments, personal subjective judgments in my mind um, that I had. So, yeah, that's why I think that I just clicked with Russia and in particular St. Petersburg when I when I first arrived. I can attest to this when you go to like any country like in the collective West 
it almost feels so homogenized in terms of like mm. the, it has like this almost like uniform type of co-working mm. space type of feel where you whatever capital you go to madrid washington yep. dc wherever it's it has like the same kind of like aesthetic this like brutalist aesthetic or whatever and there's not like as much it, it has like a really like basic culture to it you don't find um that many like authentic places unless you go like into like more of like the the sticks or like the rural areas. exactly and yeah and you land in delhi people. and you might think it's chaos you land in hanoi you might think it's chaos beep 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 and all the things but that's life you can feel that, like yeah, the pulse yeah of the city the people the you feel the energy of of the land and all this and uh, no it, it might not be the like the german efficient well-kept system no it's not but it's life and it's glorious it's fantastic whereas you go yeah germany or spain or whatever and you've got all these neat little bits or or this it, it's supposed to look good but i mean uh, one of the other like classic cliches i get is everyone says oh how clean st petersburg is the lack of graffiti I was like, yeah, it, it's one of those like common, one of those basic things of like respecting your environment. Uh, I think Russians do better, I, I feel, or at least it's more attention is paid to it by certainly the authorities maybe in cleaning up. I can't say that there's no graffiti in Russia. Absolutely not. There definitely is. But when I go to Berlin was awful. I know it's considered an art form, but I thought it was disgusting to see how much graffiti was everywhere. And you go Amsterdam as well. It's the same. Greece apparently is terrible for for just, you know, it's yep. just Homo rubbish. Like Not Banksy. I'm talking just rubbish everywhere. Yeah, carry on. No, um, yeah, it's like kind of like that global homogenization trend that you see in a lot of the West. Like um, you go any major city in the collective west you'll see that same like graffiti and, and like like yeah. same features there's like and no it is literally the same graffiti in the same style with the same colors in the same like i see in paddington in london like when you rock up in the train so when did you become more like quote unquote like geopolitically aware were were you getting into these topics like when you served in the military or was that well after to a degree actually yeah that's funny actually now you mention it looking back I think it was the Iraq War mm. All right, with Tony Blair second. So this was, uh, yeah, this was the second one, uh, 19, around 1997, I think it was. Because I was in primary school then, and I knew, I knew that Blair was a lying little cockroach. <laughs> uh, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's putting it very politely, um, considerate of the audience and perhaps the platform that you're posting on. Uh, yeah, things didn't add up, and soon enough... Was it David Kelly, the weapons inspector, was suicided? To, yeah, oh, wow. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah, that was a big thing at the time, and still is. So, yeah, I always had an inclination that didn't stop me joining the army. <laughs> uh, of course, for the reasons I've I've mentioned before about you know my background, but I was aware that certainly Blair, and therefore that then made me ask questions about the rot that was in the government's not just the British government, uh, of course, and others. And perhaps yes, 9-11 yeah. was another key flagging moment. Like, yeah, this is orchestrated. Uh, seeing George Derblier uh, talking absolute rubbish. Uh, <laughs> and this is a guy with <laughs> his finger on the... Yeah. yeah. That was a wake-up call as well for me. Like, I was like, wow, you've got a monkey in the White House? Like, <laughs> the lights are on, but no <laughs> yeah. one's home. So I really got that feeling with W. Right, so yeah, and then thinking that with Obama, I was like, oh, thank goodness, uh, someone half 
intelligent is in charge. And Obama turned out to be one of the most evil of them. Uh, drone strike king, uh, turns oh, out. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and in truth, yeah, I guess this goes back many years. When we talk about, like, the present uh, in how I'm actually reporting on it, that has been also a while, but it was privately... So it was like joking with friends on WhatsApp, like, oh, my God, have you seen this? Um, it was you know, laughing Boris Johnson. Then, and actually, in fairness, it probably goes back about 10 years. But as I say, it was just sort of in jest and joke with friends. Then around February 24th, when all this kicked off, I've still got friends in the British Army. And those those guys were keeping me up to tabs with, like, they were training Ukrainians and all this. I was hearing about all that. But then as soon as I said to them, I was like, guys, do you actually know the history of the situation you're going into? Uh, they quickly cottoned on, like, wait a minute, we can't talk to you. And, and I get that. Like, um, oh, wow. if they're with serving military, then any influence like that, especially as I was in Russia, I could be literally a foreign agent. Um, so, yeah, I, I respected that they just cut me off straight away. We can't talk to you anymore. Uh, but that was all I needed to know. I was like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. I respect that. That's fine. And then for a while, I agonized about making videos on the topic before I'd been into video games, as I've said. Now, to continue making video game videos in light of the situation and not addressing the elephant in the room, for me, was disrespectful to both sides, both Ukrainians and Russians. You can't. I didn't feel I personally could just carry on with something as inconsequential and insignificant as just pixels moving on a screen. I thought that was horrendous. So I went dark and went quiet for a good couple of months. And then I I decided, like, I'm not going to joke privately anymore because I am accurately calling stuff. There's stuff I'm calling and it's coming to pass. And it, it's okay and cool that with that one mate of yours on WhatsApp that he's like, oh, yeah, you called that. I was like, no, no, I need to speak up and I need to highlight these points for other people because I'm sure there's more. So I took a gamble on my channel, which only had like 12,000 subscribers at the time. I thought, let's see if I can get the sub count to zero. Because <laughs> all the guys were like, um, uh, they were blue and yellow flag wavers at heart, really. They pretended that they didn't like the, the people who were in charge of Second World War Germany, let's say, because this is what the video game... Uh, it was set in the Second World War. So, the, you know, they all claimed to be on the right side of history. But when it turned out to be our moment, our finest hour, allegedly, no, they were standing on the wrong side of history. They were waving the wrong flag and, uh, yeah, demonizing the wrong people, in my personal opinion. So I thought, screw this channel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 12,500 subscribers and see if I can get rid of the lot of them, if that's how they all feel about uh -huh. it. Turns out I traded 100 subscribers for coming up to 100,000 subscribers today. An excellent trade right there. Good move. It was a bit worrying at the time, but I was like, no, nah, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. As I saw the the unsubscriptions going in, I was like, let's go all the way to the bottom. And then it, it reversed and just shot through the roof until YouTube then put hold on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just like amazed at the hysteria that's been popping off since late February, but for those of us who've like studied US foreign policy, and I'd venture to say really mm. more like the collective West, like foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, because a lot of this stuff is definitely Anglo-American in nature. It's like a partnership between like DC and London. And mm. you can look just like, like NATO maneuvers since the collapse of the Soviet Union to see like there is going to be an inevitable security crisis popping off between Russia 
and the broader West. Ultimately, were you surprised by Russia's military incursion into Ukraine in late February? In short, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I just visited the UK just prior on business. And I happened to swing by the old folks' house. I was talking to my dad. And of course, this yeah, this was about mid-February, I think. So, like, yeah, it came up. And he, he said, what do you think? And I said, nah, Putin's not going to go into Ukraine. I was like, if he goes into Ukraine, he loses his leverage, diplomatic leverage. That's what I personally thought at the time. And I was wrong. And I was wrong because I was ignorant of all the facts. I was, des- you know, at that time I was, I didn't know about all the ins and outs of the eight years, all the diplomatic measures that Russia had tried to take to enforce the Minsk agreements how they had exhausted every possibility and the troop build-up by Ukraine first to attempt to retake Donbass and Crimea. Yep. And, of course, in response, they had built up their lines. I didn't, I did, like many others, I didn't see that, you know, it appeared to me that, yeah, Russia was building up troops on, on the line and that was a threat to Ukraine. I didn't realize it was actually the reverse and the Western media was projecting. <laughs> Uh, which seems seems well documented now, seems fairly uh, corroborated and clear to to those who dare to look and question. Uh, so yeah, at the time, yeah, I, I was I can it took me by complete surprise, as uh, I'm sure it did many other people, and surprisingly, as it took the West by surprise. Even though Biden was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, he's going into Ukraine." Uh, no, uh, people didn't take him seriously. He claims that even Ukraine didn't take him seriously. Well, he would know, given all the shady shit he was up to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually like funny because the perception among a lot of commentators in the West is that Russia is this gas station with nukes and that it was yep. just bluffing the entire time. And one point that I remember Andre Martyanov mentioned whenever i interviewed him he mentioned like two points that really broke like were like the straws that broke the camel's back whereas like this operation storm if you will that ukraine was trying uh was in process of conducting to, to take over like the donbass republics and also that one security conference meeting where Zelensky talked about potentially making Ukraine go nuclear work were just like the, the like the final straws for Russia and they just basically had to move because all like diplomacy failed and it's just like politic like people don't understand this that the topic of the breakaway republics in like Ukraine has a, uh, is like domestically controversial in Russia and in fact the Putin government has been largely criticized for not taking decisive action during the Euro Maidan revolution back in 2014 on the issue. And that's another myth as well in the West that Putin is actually pretty moderate by Russian political standards when it comes to foreign policy. He's very cautious. He's a very cautious man. So one thing that really shocked me in the aftermath of this conflict was just like the two minutes hate campaign being launched against Russia, not just like the state, but also this total like blood libel against the Russian people and culture. You're based on your experience living in Russia, have Russians picked up on this and have they started distancing themselves from the West in response? Uh yeah, there's two sides to that. I think mentally and psychologically, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Putin was talking about this for years about 
how the West would say one thing, do another. You couldn't trust them and how they um, didn't respect Russia. And that was proven. Yeah, that's been shown. That's come to the front. And what's more is it's quite obvious that this has been there all along f- since the Cold War. I, it was very easy for the, for the U.S., I have to be very specific, the United States, not America, United States, to plug back into the better dead than red propaganda. Oh, now, yeah. More, <laughs> more spe- yeah. More specifically, that <laughs> better dead than red stuff, of course, existed in, in I'm going to say the United Kingdom specifically. I can't speak for the EU, but I think somewhere, especially Germany, you think East-West Germany, there's, there's some good old propaganda to tap into quite readily and quite quickly because it's still in living memory for many of the population there. And I think that's what really struck people is that, wow, they've had a knife behind their back the whole time. That's the truth of it. They've, back in Yeltsin and Clinton days, you know, when they basically were pillaging Russia while it was at its weakest and fragmented and in chaos. That's when the West was happy with Russia when Russia was in disarray and they, the corporations were taking all they want, like they do in Africa, like they do everywhere. It's their modus operandi. But as soon as Putin took the helm and then started shutting those operations down and then start, you know, he offered to join NATO and they were rebuked and rebuffed and then they were pretty much just treated with contempt on the geopolitical arena at every turn, particularly by the England, uh, as Russians like to call them, the Anglo-Saxons. I quite like that. It's like an archaic term. And I think it's accurate too. Uh, England, Germany, Anglo-Saxon. So yeah, when you you think about all those years, so Putin's been proven absolutely 100% right in that regard. And regrettably speaking from a western point of view he's been proven right in so many other regards about the west as well and now russians are seeing that for themselves and they they actually sadly can't avoid it either when the special operation kicked off there were some horrendous adverts being permitted by facebook that my wife showed me you know encouraging russians to commit suicide and just stuff you wouldn't expect meta to permit honestly you know they're evil bastards, but you wouldn't expect that. But Russians were exposed to that. So when Facebook was blocked, that was a relief. That that was really good. Same same goes yes. for Instagram as well. And even at YouTube, actually, I caught some bizarre YouTube ads. I still do now and then when I use a VPN. Not so much now, but in weeks past, Ukrainian-sponsored adverts or Ukrainian-leaning ones. And I'm thinking, who funded this shit? And it was quite clear who did. It was either Ukraine or the West. And I was like, God, no wonder. And and then my next question was, what does this achieve? What are you trying to achieve with this? Because it was completely counterproductive. It was like either gaslighting the the viewer, who was they assumed was Russian or, or whatever. And it was completely, like, it really put your back up watching it. I know that was my feeling, and I'm not even Russian. It was just an F you, man. Who the hell are you to talk or, or to lecture me? It's like, if you want me to be on your side, you don't tell me I'm a, a terrible person or whatever. You know, it's complete bizarre psychology. So that you had that too. And then with all these companies withdrawing, fantastic. You've shown your face. You've shown your true colors. You didn't, you didn't value our business. You didn't value that relationship, did you? Because you took, to quote companies, British American Tobacco posted a 1.6 billion dollar loss 
due to their exit from Russia. They're not going to be missed. That vacuum is going to be filled by some other nicotine tobacco supplier. But Philip Morris has also um, claimed to be moving out. IKEA kind of claimed, made a big song and dance about moving out, but then they're, they're selling online. They're creeping back in. So there were a lot of companies sort of claimed to be, but couldn't really afford to properly leave the Russian market. But even they're stained in their attitude, and that's meant that Russian competitors and even Chinese and all the others have moved in. So, yeah, in, in that regard, I haven't had any xenophobia or any bad treatment due to my nationality. There was more positive respect and amusement that an uh, Englishman was in Russia around the time of the World Cup, let's say. Now, there's still, like, some amusement <laughs> that I'm an Englishman in Russia, but it's n I'm not held in the same high regard that I was before. And I'm not saying that I deserve that or should sh I'm owed that. Absolutely not. I'm, I'm still treated perfectly um, nicely, but it's sad to see that there's not that, that same level of not even respect it's um friendliness maybe and it's mm -hmm. deserved i completely deserved yeah the the points you raised about the social media type of commentary ju uh, are just like another reminder that big tech is the private arm of this transnational western national security state and in fact if you look at the history of like Facebook and Google, there is a lot of connections with the intelligence agencies and even Absolutely. like the like the defense department in terms of like propaganda. You could see like with Twitter, for example, the it, it was an instrumental vehicle during the Green Revolution in like Iran, like I think like two thousand nine or whatever, and. It was actually. These are yeah. uh, instruments of Jeez. soft power. And I'd even mm. argue like anything like English speaking like media as well. It, it functions as like a de facto ICBM against whatever country is like subjected to that. And I actually don't blame some of these countries that take so-called like authoritarian measures to crack down on these NGOs and big tech platforms that really actually are eroding their national sovereignty by undermining their culture and just pushing subversive content that really serves like no purpose. And I fully expect a lot of developing nations and nations in like the so-called like Eurasian bloc to start exercising like more sovereignty with regards to social media and other tech platforms. I mean, the truth be told, if it was inconsequential, the West wouldn't be censoring Russian media to the same level that it has done. It's actually even more breathtaking. I think there was like earlier this week where there was like this one YouTube executive that was just stressing the company's like commitment to continue fighting so-called Russian disinformation and all of this stuff. It's, it's very much part of the, uh, this like tech sector's policy to do that they're like functioning like a almost like a like a kind of like privatized arm of the broader like national security state and i've been telling people this that there really isn't much of a distinction between the private and public sector especially when you're dealing with really massive transnational corporations in the west so we're we're just seeing this play out in real time 
no, you make I'll, a real valid point that uh, you know people talk about uh, First Amendment rights and all this stuff, and they they talk about laws and things that do not govern private entities, corporations, like you've just said. So, like, I got a strike for hate speech, <laughs> and then I got another strike for <laughs> discussing my strike and how the video <laughs> I got hate speech didn't have any hate in it and didn't have any speech in it so I, I i didn't say it was wrong i didn't even i didn't even say that the strike was undeserved necessarily i just said that the hate speech policy on youtube is so broad that it can be used to be whatever they say it is uh, i just said i've got this case where i had a video from the village whose name sounds like a man who sells you meat that we can't discuss and <laughs> this this video was just the clip from you know that wing mirror where it was claimed that things weren't as it seemed. And that was the title of the video. There are claims that this footage isn't what it seems. And then the next bit was the world's media is replicating this footage. So yeah, I got this double strike. But th there's no point talking about freedom of speech on a corporate platform. It's their, it's their game. It's their rules. It's, it's their platform that they're permitting you to broadcast upon. Hey, you don't like it? Make your own. That's fine. That, that's your right. And there you'll have freedom of speech. If then your internet provider shuts you down, well, that's because you're using their services. Create your own. Uh, use use your own network or whatever. I mean, I, it's not right. I'm not saying it's it's right. But it's just what it is. And I get why it is how it is. But to think these platforms are anything other than the front companies for the intelligence agencies of these governments is to be grossly naive uh, and it, and to understand this is all a game uh, and then when you like i say when you see the level of western censorship you know just how important the game is because if it was inconsequential then the west wouldn't take the measures it's done and of course it has its own way because it pulls the strings and it owns those platforms so it's also amusing to see russia come up with its analogs china come up with its own versions of these platforms and that's another problem china owns things like tiktok oh well they don't like that now do they yeah. <laughs> when the, when the chinese have got their own version <laughs> that's wildly popular what's the what are the most popular social media platforms in russia i know like vk is one of them yeah vk is a big one and it's miles better than facebook in uh, numerous aspects yeah they <laughs> they made rosgram i don't know how popular that is yet uh, <laughs> they made that as a replacement for instagram they don't have anything to replace twitter which is quite good because twitter's crap anyway good yeah evidence to that uh, yeah, they haven't successful. bothered. <laughs> they have created their own uh, version of Android Play Store, I think, uh, I read recently. So all, all, all the stuff that people actually miss, they're making versions of. They might not be as good as. Uh, like our YouTube is a version of YouTube. Our YouTube's got ways to go. It's got a long way to go before it's anything like YouTube. But their um, mission statement uh, for creators and revenue sharing and all this it seems very promising, seems very good, so... Uh, we shall see. And, and that's the thing. If Russians get sick of the treatment they get on these other platforms, they have alternatives. That's the big thing. So I wanted to go back to British sentiments towards Russia because whenever I would just go and browse like online commentary with regards to the present Russo-Ukrainian conflict, some of like the most unhinged 
takes on this situation generally came from like the British media that I would like consume yeah. on occasion. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's absolutely like weird. It, it's and it's actually like really like fanatic too. Yeah. And and I was just wondering, is there like a disconnect between like the British chattering classes and the average British citizen with regards to this conflict? That's a really good question. I'm my sample pool is distorted because of the type of people that I associate with. I I have always been, you know, like of the opinion dead fish go with the flow. So I don't believe there are many British people in all honesty that think 9/11 was anything more than just some crazy hijackers who took planes into a building. They never looked further past that. They didn't even question why the BBC announced that Building 7 collapsed before it actually collapsed. Yeah, and yet they saw that with their own eyes. I did as well. And they may not have... You know, there's not that questioning. Where this Russophobia comes from in, in Britain, I don't know. And I can't explain it. And the only thing I can really fall back on is the Cold War Better Red Than Dead stuff. Yeah. Uh, better Dead Than Same. Red. Uh, that's the only explanation I can come up with. There's no logical, rational explanation for this, particularly in recent times, when you look at the hypocrisy of London that has become the laundromat of Russian oligarchs. And, and the government itself has accepted donors that are predominantly, or, or a large size, uh, from Russia. Uh, Jonathan Pye made a great satirical piece. Obviously, it was quite anti-Russian in its sentiment. It was for the New York Post, I believe, on YouTube. But in the points he raised there were, were absolutely valid, in my opinion, where England had happily taken all this Russian money. As they did, they took the gold from Tsar Nicholas, I believe, and never returned it. They stole it from the Russian royal family uh, before they were executed. They never, they never gave that back. So the British relationship with Russia historically speaking is not particularly good it's one of deceit and even invasion the british it was the royal navy that sailed up and i believe uh, engaged with the fortress at st petersburg years ago kronstadt and all that so there's i i just can't explain why today there is this deep-seated i'm just going to say hatred i'm just going to say hatred now the average british person wouldn't say hatred what they'd say is that russian people are lovely but of course putin is is evil uh, and it's a shame they've got such an evil leader and yet they won't look at liz truss and think that she's a deranged bat they won't look at boris johnson and think he's a bloody clown uh, yeah. if you want to talk about unfortunate leaders you know they were what's the saying people in gr in glass houses shouldn't throw stones and that's like Time and again, it comes back. It's like, who the hell are you to preach to anyone else? Those days are long gone. And even when those days were here, the days of the British Empire, you British were committing some of the most heinous acts on the planet. Like, you were the pioneers of the concentration camps during the Boer War. You know, you really have no platform to stand upon or, or high horse if you're on one you need to get down from it because you need some humility and there really is no humility it's just stupidity that i'm seeing and that's contrasted by the supreme level of professionalism competence and and real diplomacy that i'm seeing not just from russia now i've just seen clips from china and they won't come out and say you idiots like they should they they should come out with some nice yeah, really tell us how you feel china 
about Pelosi and <laughs> yes. all the crap she's pulled. Really tell us how you feel, because I'd respect that on a on a base level, like on, on a, you know, really like, as a troll. I, I'd love it if you just called them all the douchebags that they are. But no, they've got class, and they come out and they say China firmly opposes this. Oh, now that is the proper and correct response on the geopolitical diplomatic stage. Absolutely, ten out of ten. But I, I, I want to hear, you know, because we're used to reality TV now, aren't we? We want to hear the rant. You know, we love all that stuff. And Liz Truss, will, she'll go on a rant. No worries. She, she, she doesn't care if Rostov on Don is part of, of Russia. She doesn't care if she just blows both her feet off with complete ignorance. So long as she gets that PR stunt and that sound bite that they need. Uh, if Olaf Scholz goes alongside a turbine, kicks the pallet and just says, yes, turbine, it's good to go. Yeah, Schultz, you just look a complete fool. It's like, why don't you actually do your job and do it properly? Yeah, the, these uh, candidates for who's going to be like the next like, UK PM have like nothing upstairs. Like when you look at like Liz Truss, she's just doing this like wannabe like Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher Act. That's really cliche, basic. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's just And then like, Rishi Sunak, um, everyone sees he's a puppet for JP Morgan and Goldman oh, Sachs. Oh, yeah, the guy's so fake, yeah. You, these yeah. guys are just like total empty suits. They're really just like facsimiles of just like any Western politician. Now, in the U.S.'s case with regards to the Russophobia, it's actually like really bizarre because historically, uh, U.S. and Russia have actually gotten along pretty well up until like the Cold War because the Russian like naval fleet uh, actually protect, uh, prevented any yeah. type of European intervention in the American Civil War. Yep, they owe and their existence to Russia. Yep. Yep. To not put fact, too fine a point on it. In fact, you did see at one point, actually, there was like a, there was speculation from like the 1860s well into like um, the 1940s of like the US potentially going at it with Britain because of Britain's uh, merging alliance with um, Japan. And to mm. balance against that, a lot of like US policymakers were trying to forge like at least like decent relations with Russia and were not really pursuing that. But I think the Cold War changed a lot of that. And even in the post-Cold War, you've seen a lot of, a lot of like Eastern European ethnics and like exiles and all these people insinuate themselves in the u.s government and they're kind of just like pursuing these really old ethnic type of beefs with russia they just think that putin's mm -hmm. this like neo-zar that's just about to commit like a pogrom and all this stuff it's so irrational and not grounded in any form of logic that this kind of stuff is just really is kind of like late empire style type of decline where people just are no longer thinking soberly yeah. about these issues unfortunately you're talking about a level of knowledge of history which as sergey lavrov pointed out in his interview with steve rosenberg doesn't exist so in the west it's cancel culture anything before february 24th doesn't exist it's just russia just lashed out Bad. one day yeah <laughs> there's, there's nothing before that mm -hmm. yeah you have to like, that's the one thing about geopolitics you have to look at things like very like structurally and a lot of times some of this stuff like unfolds over the course of multiple decades. And that's really hard for people to process because they do look at geopolitics in like very Manichaean terms of like black and white, like good, bad, liberal democracy versus authoritarian rule, all, all this like nonsense. And yeah, lots of bad 
foreign policy priors that people are operating on. Now, speaking of conventional wisdom going wrong, the one of like the biggest economic own goals, in my opinion, that the collective West has committed was this bevy of sanctions they unleashed against Russia after the military of this after the special military operation was launched. Um, these sanctions were ostensibly used to try to degrade Russia's military capabilities, and in my view, ultimately try to affect some form of regime change. None of that has come to pass whatsoever. Based on your experience on the ground, have the sanctions have any noticeable impact on the everyday lives of Russians? Only the... I'm going to speak first of all personally. Personally, I try as much as possible now to buy Russian. Uh, and that's partly selfish because... I'll use the example of cars, uh, the car industry. Parts are ridiculously expensive for German cars. And uh, if I buy... First of all, the Russian car. I know I can get the parts and they'll be cheap. Uh, second second layer would be then Chinese, Korean, um, not so much Japanese anymore, but potentially Japanese. So there's this contraction of wanting to do business. Uh, so you're thinking about the sources of your product, who makes them, uh, where do they come from. Not so much that you, you want to support Russia and make sure it does well so much, but you're, th you're thinking of future-proofing, you're thinking of, you know, what other crap is the West going to pull that might cause you financial hardship in the future? Uh, that's the everyday person. Of course, the richer people probably uh, aren't worried so much about that. The everyday Russian, they did notice... Yeah, Western brands, I've said before, I think like, you know, nappies, diapers, they shot up in price. Procter & Gamble, uh, they increased their prices. And again, that's just meant that you buy Russian or you buy from a friendly country, let's say China being one. N the sanctions have not, have certainly not achieved their stated aimed and aims, and they've not even achieved their unstated aims, being regime change or being, you know, making people's lives that much more uncomfortable uh, i will have to caveat that caveat that in the sense that i am i'm quite privileged in my position in russia i'm not for instance living on a pension or fixed income where maybe life has become more difficult but if it has become more difficult you don't think that's putin's fault you're quite well aware that it's the west's fault their actions that have had the knock-on effect on the Russian economy. So there's not the desired attempt to go, oh, if we remove Putin, then all our problems will be fixed. That's abundantly clear that's not the case because the problem lies in the West, not in Russia. There are many problems in Russia, as Putin himself admits, but the solution doesn't lie in removing the guy who is being proven to have actually been looking after Russia's interests all along, has been doing the right thing. Even if the, that's a, another road and debate to go down, you know, did you do the right thing in the right way? Well, you know, we can argue that till the cows come home, but effectively brought Russia from its knees after the collapse of the Soviet Union to the point where it is now, it's not being respected perhaps, but it is now being acknowledged as the power that Putin always wanted it to be seen as. And it always was. It was just treated as this unwanted child all along. No, that's that's the perfect way of describing that entire 
relationship between Russia and the West. Now, as a result of this geopolitical earthquake, Russia has, I, I think, well, this pivot has been taking place for some time. I just think that the, the fallout from Russia's military incursion has just only accelerated this trend of its like pivot towards the East because from what I've gathered, Russia does have pretty flexible diplomatic protocols because their foreign policy, its foreign policy is not really predicated on discriminating between liberal democracies and authoritarian regimes. They try to become friends with everyone. You can just look at how it has pursued diplomatic relations with historical rivals such as Iran and Turkey. In the former's case, Russia has a lot of historical antagonisms with Iran. It's dealt some pretty vicious beatdowns in several wars throughout its history. But nevertheless, they're now very, they've been pretty solid strategic partners in the past two decades. Based on what you've been analyzing um, in the past few months, what notable like diplomatic ventures has Russia pursued um, among like Eurasian countries that come to mind? Uh, Eurasian specifically, I'll think about that. You've mentioned Iran, which, yeah, I agree with you, everything you've just said. Not Eurasia, but I will say Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been, and not just re just recently, this has been years in the making. Yeah, the same yeah, with China. Yes. China's been doing business in Africa for years now, and not in the way that the West does it. You know, talking about loans, building ports and stuff, actually helping Africans and their economy. That is not probably at the forefront right now. It will be, I think, in the future. It will become a good investment from both China and Russia in Africa, I believe. Uh, it has made the news with regards to African leaders. In Eurasia, Iran has been extremely important because of like Pepe, Pepe Escobar's article where he talked about transport corridors. So mm -hmm. when you think of the link from India to Iran and then, uh, then onwards and up, and Turkey, of course, are instrumental. So Turkey and Iran... They have secured those friendly relations. And even that's despite Turkey straddling the line with being a NATO member as well, which is no mean feat, diplomatically speaking, as you've just highlighted, even despite differences with Iran. That speaks to the professionalism of the foreign ministries uh, of both countries, actually, when we look at it that way. There are more countries uh, about him. What is it? Algeria wanting to join BRICS. Then there was Argentina as well. There are more developments in more places than I think even the West can keep up with, where years, are, and when I say years, I mean going back to the days of the Soviet Union, where Russian or Soviet slash Russian foreign policy is now bearing fruit in more in the like of a walnut tree. Eurasia, that's, uh, that's an interesting one to, to talk about. Nothing, nothing actually springs to mind there, and I'm probably missing a big one, so forgive me on that one. But yeah, I would, I would definitely keep my eye on Africa. Yeah, and yeah, you're seeing the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mm. I've noticed it gain more steam. I think Iran is about to join it too. Yep. And Russia's obviously going to figure pretty prominently there with China. Yeah, with regards to Latin America, the U.S. is really starting to lose a lot of influence in that like, traditional sphere of influence there. Because ever since it started pursuing more of a Eurasian focused like type of foreign policy, it's created like a lot of vulnerabilities within its own backyard. And then you had this like organization of the America Summit, 
that was just like a total disaster with a lot of countries like yeah. you know, showing and even like sending like low level like diplomatic functionaries there. It's just like a sign that's like really deprioritized that region and and it's leaving a lot of openings there because it's not just like the countries like the so-called like Legion of Doom countries like Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba that are like opposing it. There's also like other countries getting cold feet about it in Latin America. And I definitely see opportunities for China and Russia to exploit there as the world grows more multipolar. In reality, it's kind of funny because the West always talks about openness and all this, yeah. all these like buzzwords, but they're actually like isolating themselves. <laughs> For me, it's just karma. Just all this bullying, yeah. especially from Come when up, we it's... talk about the United States. You know, the treatment of Venezuela. What did you expect? Yeah, yeah, and I'm actually from Venezuela, uh, funny enough. And yeah, the foreign policy there has been uh, pretty bad. Like, say what you want about like the Venezuelan government, but like U.S. trying to like affect like regime change and create destabilization there is just going to make things much worse. It's not going to be mm. like you just like topple that regime and you're going to have this liberal like stable liberal democracy that will guarantee you like five percent gdp growth on an annual basis that's not how things work and like yeah. oh let's why... not leave the british out didn't the bank of england steal venezuela's gold yeah there's like that whole yeah that whole controversy yeah. there actually um i have noticed too that during the whole constitutional crisis in 2019 with the guaido thing the british were pretty energetic in terms of giving a lot of like diplomatic support to Guaido and they're actually I know from like studying the subject there are a lot of um, a lot of like Venezuelan opposition have like strong connections to like London and all that and there's like a kind of like weird transnational class of like Venezuelans that have like dual citizenship with yeah. UK and Sounds it's kind of like the same playbook you see that like all over yeah. you have these people that are groomed in like think tanks in the West that try to bring like the same like dysfunctional neoliberal model to to these countries. Probably yeah, attended the London chaotic. School of Economics as well. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Now I want to talk about China specifically just to mm. close off like this whole uh, discussion because this is probably one of like the biggest topics right now. The the Chinese Russian rapprochement that I've argued has taken place since like the like the early years of the ending of like the Cold War. And this relationship has only grown more intimate since the Russian special military operation kicked off. From your point of view, how are the sentiments towards China among Russians at the moment? Uh, well, China and Russia have, obviously they're quite close neighbors. So they've had, always had an ongoing relationship. Uh, the the Chinese being like somewhat of a minor irritant, uh, particularly like <laughs> with the numbers of tourists that come over. So they sometimes have their own dedicated days in visiting like museums. <laughs> so the Russians mm. got a bit sick of them <laughs> in that regard. From what I hear, actually, the Russian uh, Chinese uh, will also get up to some shady stuff in buying Russian land. So there's a scheme whereby it's called the Siberian Hector, where a, a Russian citizen can submit a development plan not even so much a business plan but similar a development plan for a plot of land and the if the government approves it you will get a hectare to develop in siberia free of charge that that land is yours and you will enact this plan however of course russians are lazy <laughs> as ah. hum most humans are so the chinese will sort of you know, buy their claim 
uh, and have been doing so for years, so have incrementally bought more and more parts of Russia. They, their name might not be on the deeds, but they, of course, they control it. So there's some um, relationship, a little bit unofficial, let's say, in that regard between Russia and China. But I think to be, before the Pelosi stunt, there was mutual respect between China and Russia and, and the peoples. The, the fact, obviously, the Chinese foreign ministry didn't just... It, it, it didn't even just sit on the fence, so to speak. They, they weren't on the fence, but they were playing that very good, competent diplomatic game. After Pelosi's stunt, of course, they have uh, come full out and said, no, we are absolutely on the side of Russia you know, and, and Ukraine very much and, and the West very much antagonized Russia. Uh, and they have now openly stated they are strengthening ties, industrial and all sorts, trade and across the board with Russia. That is where the counterproductive stupidity of the West is bearing fruit for Russia uh, and solidifying this BRICS and uh, even this multipolar world coming to fruition. Oh, it's absolutely comical, really tragicomical in a way, how the U uh, the U.S. and the, like the West have memed this whole Eurasian axis into existence through their constant saber rattling against like Russia, China, and Iran. And it's like, you guys will realize that this is a natural blowback. This a lot like this alliance they're form this de facto alliance they're forming is like natural blowback from your geopolitical machinations. But nobody can like register that. <laughs> No, yeah, all of it's self-inflicted, and it's that meme where, you know, you stick that stick in your bicycle wheel and then blame Putin or blame Xi Jinping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. It's like, what? No. All right, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of talk I've seen, in, and it's really, to me, is, is cope, coping, if you will, where there, there's people that are acknowledging the reality of this Russia-China strategic partnership, but then they'll like hedge it by saying, oh, but it's not going to last whatsoever. They're going uh, to eventually... They also flip it the other way, like, oh, this is China's game to subjugate Russia. Yeah. What do you, what do you, make, of, what do you make of that? Yeah. Well, yeah, these countries, first and foremost, as they should, look out for number one. Absolutely. Further their own interests. Everyone knows that. That's cool. I don't judge anyone for that and you can't even claim that the west is altruistic and not looking out for number one absolutely of course it is so maybe there is some validity to this idea that china is trying to get one up on russia but do you think the russians aren't aware of that haven't factored that in aren't willing to trade on that somewhat lead them along a bit i don't i don't foresee it's at the levels that people claim it is i just think whilst they're whilst they're pointing fingers and going oh but 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 china's the bad guy they're going to do this to Russia, whatever. Well, you're ignoring your own problems that you're going to be drowning. Projection. Yeah, yeah, absolute projection. You're, you're going to be awash away in your own problems of hyperinflation and debt-riddled crisis and depression, probably. So maybe China will do that, but it's none of your concern. You should be looking closer to home and probably cutting out the rot of your own political system. Yeah, I've argued this point that a lot of the, uh, this geopolitical hand wringing that you see from Americans and like the British really is a way to divert attention away from like a lot of the problems that the social and economic problems these countries are facing that are very real. And some of them are existential in nature where I've argued that this, the 21st century may is going to be very rough for the West as their economies start slowly imploding and then a lot of the social problems from mass migration and other issues that are 
afflicting the West start to rear their ugly heads. And I think it's going to be a, be a very rough 21st century. And one of the things that I've also pointed out too, my fear is that the political classes who pick, who pick up on these developments will try to create rally around the flag effects by demonizing both like Russia and China. The latter is starting to become much more salient just because of the fact that China is so massive. You're seeing people, and I've seen this across the political spectrum from people like the Financial Times, like that journalist Janan Ganesh, to even somewhat more reasonable sounding people on the right, like Steve Bannon, talk about how we can create unity in, the pol in a polarized United States by rallying against China. And it's just like, no, that's not gonna happen. And those, these problems are going to continue, like these social problems are gonna continue into effect and adding a geopolitical conflict with like a nuclear power is just going to like accelerate this decline like no other. We're lucky that the Chinese have shown the restraint that they have. I don't think anyone would disagree that they could have, they could have retaliated. And I'm not gonna say as people expected, I think as the West hoped, like, they're that idiotic. I think they hoped that China would do something really stupid to justify a response. It's it's childish behavior, playground stuff, isn't it? It's like flicking your classmate's ear to get them to lash back yes. at you so you can say, teacher, look what he did. Uh, you know, isn't he the bad guy? Isn't he a mean bully? Well, no, you're the one antagonizing them. And it's... Yep, schoolyard it's geopolitics. So it really is from the West. That's what I see, and uh, yeah, well, it shames me because of my origin. But on on the other side of things, uh, you have talk about the U.S. having a carrier group gearing up now to sail through the Taiwan Strait, almost as they did. Was it with aviation yeah. in the fifties and sixties, leading to this Russian phrase, a Chinese final warning, where the China Chinese issued nine hundred final warnings uh, <laughs> back in the fifties and sixties. Uh, so maybe they're they're playing on the paper tiger rubbish, uh, but China's already showing that it's far it's above that. And again, Russia's proved itself above those childish schoolyard uh, tactics. So the West is shaming itself, but it's far worse than that. As you've just mentioned, all these issues that are well known, the Bank of England's near as damn it proven to now be fudging the numbers with inflation we know that the united states are hiding it and lying about it redefining it so they're aware of these problems which leads me now to the conclusion that this is self-sabotage why would they self-sabotage i honestly can't say with any authority or actual knowledge but i would hazard a guess it's to this great reset you'll own nothing and you'll be happy uh, the, you know, this pursuit of these cutting off the gas and the green agenda and all these green sources, I'm guessing with my tinfoil hat is to lead to this 2030 idea of the Klaus Schwab's belief of a utopia for the 1%. Uh, see, whilst Rome is, well, Nero is fiddling whilst Rome burns in not just Rome, but all these other countries, Washington, London and Berlin, to name just a few. That's that's where I get this stupidity has now reached the point where I think it's actually intentional and uh, it's being enacted by these hollow puppets, these uh, empty suits, as you quite rightly called them. Indeed, there's a lot of crazy stuff that's going on yeah. that we could talk about for hours, but yeah. I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in this conversation. Mike, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Where can you. my listeners stay up to date on your most recent content? 
maybe the safest is actually Telegram, t.me forward slash TV. Uh, I think that's probably the most future-proof, but otherwise it's youtube.com forward slash TV. youtube.com forward slash TV. I have set up a Locals uh, community, uh, com, but I'm still that's still quite new on me uh, and um, quite fresh. So, yeah, those I think Telegram would probably be the best way. Awesome. Uh, thank you again for participating. And to my audience, make sure to follow all of Mike's content because it's absolutely on point. And thank you all for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.